This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello and welcome to Series 2 of our Be Well podcasts. I'm Becca Walker, your host, and I'm delighted to be here and bring you another jam-packed series. We will kick off the series today by discussing imposter syndrome and how to overcome it. We've had a lot of interest in this episode and I'm delighted to be joined by you all today. Before we get started, can we do some quick introductions so our listeners know who you are and why you have volunteered to be part of today's episode? Hi, my name is Professor Amanda Lee. I am Director of the Institute of Applied Health Sciences in the School of Medicine, Medical Sciences and Nutrition. And imposter syndrome is not only something that I've suffered from and still continue to suffer from occasionally throughout my academic career, um, but I also find that it's something that's um, really, really prevalent um, in among groups of academic and non-academics um, across the university. Um, and I'm really keen that we all learn to know what it is and also how we can actually overcome it or at least meet with it and and um, accept it so it's part of life. Hi I'm Megan I'm a fourth year English student and I think this is the kind of resource that I would have benefited from in my first year when I didn't have a clue what imposter syndrome was but I was definitely experiencing it um, so I really was keen to be a part of it and I also was on the um, podcast series in the first series and I really enjoyed it so I'm really glad to be back today. Hi um I'm Ben Kramer. I am a PhD student in music composition. Um, for me, uh, imposter syndrome has been something that's kind of followed me since childhood, um, particularly being a musician in a field that is largely thought to be dying. Um, <clears throat> so I, I was hoping that I could share a little bit of... Uh, what I've dealt with and how I deal with it and hopefully provide some some help to everyone else. Hi, I'm Lucy. I'm a first year PhD student in archaeology. Um, I've suffered from imposter syndrome all my life as well and especially at university and because I'm a woman who's sort of in STEM but not quite in STEM so I've got like difficult feelings around that and I think it's interesting to explore with other people. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for joining me. And we've got such an array of expertise and specialists in the room. So it's absolutely fantastic for an episode like this. Um, I'm really looking forward to this episode and discussing with you guys. So thanks for giving up your time. So um, what is imposter syndrome? It's often described as feeling like you are a fraud, doubting your own abilities and feeling like you're somehow going to be caught out at some point. Is this how you guys would describe imposter syndrome and has it ever affected you guys and do you feel that it's really prevalent in universities? Um, for me at least, um, imposter syndrome struck me the hardest when I was doing my undergraduate. Um, I had kind of a habit when I was a teenager of um, sort of following around my idols. Um, I didn't listen to a lot of, you know, normal music that a lot of my friends did. Um, most of that had to do with being able to afford CDs back then. Um, so I always kind of looked elsewhere. And there were a number of uh, composers in Minnesota where I grew up. And they would often have concerts with local ensembles. And uh, one of my mentors worked at my high school invited us to a concert and 
um, I got to hear this for the first time. So I would go to these concerts and I would email the the composers kind of like a like a little fan and asking for their music and then I started sending them music and this just kind of carried on throughout um, the early part of my career. And I remember in undergraduate I sat down with a with a teacher and I asked for some feedback on a piece and she pulled out the red pen and just started going through and saying, well this is ridiculous, etc. And I said, well, you know, I sent this piece to so-and-so, and, and they thought that this this thing worked and it was effective. And she just kind of stopped what she was doing and went on sort of a little rant about how I was making the university look bad because someone who doesn't have their degree is attempting to stand on equal footing as professionals in my field. And I'll never forget that moment and what that kind of uh, did to me. And it just followed me ever since. Um, and just just that idea of you're, you're making not just yourself look bad, but you're making this institution look bad. You're, you're representing your university poorly. And... I mean, yeah, that just it just stuck with me, and I, I that's the thing that I've been trying to escape ever since. Um, I don't think I'd really come across the term imposter syndrome until my first year of uni, at least. Um, and if I had, I certainly didn't know what its definition was, although it, it applied to me, but it definitely did. I think that's when I struggled with it the most. Um, I think for me, it's like a mixture of social comparison and feelings of self doubt and paranoid like perfectionism, which is something I definitely have, and. It's something that I think, I think it's when you become fearful that you will be exposed for being something that you are not, even though you are, um, that everyone else will just find out you're a fraud. I think that's like its definition. But um, I think first year of uni especially is kind of a whirlwind of like sensory stimulation and feeling overwhelmed because you're meeting so many new faces and you have to take in so much new information. And I think it's natural in that situation to compare like every inch of your life to the girl next door. So all of your peers, like people in your seminars and societies. So I think going to seminars in particular for me was when it would peak because you feel as though everyone else in the room has received this memo that you've somehow missed and they somehow know so much more than you. Um, and I think like even though I'd sit there and I'd have read the book and I'd have done all of the prep, I couldn't have done any more work for it. I still sat there and I was playing down my abilities and strengths and I questioned whether like the university admissions team had made a mistake and somehow I was not meant to be there and they'd let me in. Um, so I always felt like I was in a room of people that knew so much more than me when it wasn't the case. It was just that I was letting the imposter syndrome and like lack of confidence stop me from actually just joining in. Um, and I think it can just sometimes lead to um, a lot of isolation and feeling disconnected, not just from like other people, but from experiences and opportunities as well which when you are in university, you should be kind of taking and like diving headfirst into and doing all of those things. So yeah, I think university students definitely, like in particular, struggle with, struggle with it a lot, but it's not spoken about, which is quite sad. 
My feelings of imposter syndrome probably started. I was the only one in the family that ever went to university. And so as I did my first degree and then my master's degree, it got to the stage that my family didn't really understand um, the pressures that students were under because not, say, I was the only one at university. Um, and then I went and got my first um, research assistant job um, in, in the University of Dundee um, and was persuaded by my, one of my line managers um, to do my PhD. Um, and it was just that feeling of, you know, someone was sitting on my shoulder, ready to tap my shoulder and say, actually, you, you know, you're in the wrong place kind of thing. So I was a statistician in a, a um, very busy research unit um, and I was um, trying to do a PhD at the same time as um, doing my research post. Um, I had three supervisors, all male, all clinical, one of them being the head of the uh, unit and one being the deputy and one being a clinician in Glasgow. Um, so I wrote up a PhD, um, lots of nights and weekends, as anyone familiar with doing a PhD um, uh, uh, will, will testify to. Um, and um, my two of my supervisors read subsequent drafts and everything, you know, took on board their comments and everything. Um, and I kept thinking, there's no way this is going to fly. You know, there's absolutely no way I'm going to get this PhD. This is just a bit of a waste of time kind of thing. But, you know, pursued it. Um, and then I think my two supervisors had said, I think it's ready to go in. We had the examiners lined up. Um, and so at that point, I'd, my, uh, the head of department I'd invited to all the supervisory meetings. He never came to any of them. Um, so I had a meeting with him, given him my PhD for about a month, and then he called me in to see him. And as I walked into his office, I'll never forget it, um, I walked in, I saw my PhD on his desk, and he must have used four pads of post-it notepads throughout the PhD. I don't think there was a page without some post-it notepad on it, all different colours. And it was quite pretty, but just that feeling of wow, this is it, this is the time that I've actually been found out, you know, that he's obviously got comments on this, not just one or two or three, but there's multiple, there's hundreds of them. And he literally asked me to sit down, threw my PhD across his desk and said, I've no idea what this is. I don't know how you got your first two degrees, but certainly you're not going to get a PhD from here. And I sort of kept control. I wanted to burst into tears didn't um, manage to say, well, well, where do I go from here? And he said, yeah, you need to think about this because um, I'm not even going to go through it. Just my, my comments are on there. Um, and so um, I went back to my desk um, and eventually phoned my um, other two supervisors who said, um, just ignore him, just put it in. It's fine. Um, uh, but he's head of department, you know, what he says goes kind of thing. No, no, just get it submitted. So it went in um, after a lot of persuasion. Um, about two months later, um, I got called into my internal examiner, who was head of medicine in Dundee at that time, um, who said, um, I've been in conversation with you, external examiner who was in Ireland, um, and he's only got a couple of things to say. Um, basically, he said it's not worth his flight price of his flight to come over from Ireland to revive your PhD. He wants it passed without any changes. Um, but he said, and um, I'm your internal, he said, I've got a typo on one of the tables that I want you to correct, but I'm in complete agreement with him. Um, but we have got a problem in that your head of department has um, basically said that he doesn't believe he should be awarded this without a viva. Um, and at the moment, the university have actually seen whether they can award it to you without a viva. So it was a very nerve-wracking sort of couple of weeks after that. Um, but I eventually got my letter through to say that I've been awarded the PhD without Viva. Um, and um, in the meantime, because of all the stress and everything, I decided I wasn't was going to leave. 
Dundee and get another job. Um, I moved to Edinburgh University the day that I got my letter through to say it had been passed officially kind of thing um, and left the unit. And I did say at that time um, to anyone, that to, you know, to my supervisors that I would never, ever make anyone feel the way I felt that time, that um, he absolutely crushed me. It took me a while to get over it um, and to realise that, you know, I did have a career in academia. Um, I'm not saying that that was the end of it, you know, I still suffer, even to this day, occasionally from imposter syndrome, that feeling of just, you know, someone's going to find me out. I now manage 240 staff um, and I absolutely actively encourage them. I think there's a few sort of um, disbeliefs about imposter syndrome that people think it's, it's only for women, it's only women who suffer from it. Well, obviously that's not the case. We've got a, a male um, just admitted to it today. Um, and many of my colleagues think that it's a sort of a, a early mid-career student phenomenon as well in academia. Um, but again, speaking to many of the senior management um, that I interact with on a daily basis, you know, there's many of them, male, female, um, senior managers, who suffer from this as well. Um, and so, no, it's not just a student thing at all. Um, it's not a female thing. It's not in one particular part of society. I think it's across society. But I think it's how you deal with it that makes the difference. And, you know, the hints and tips that we'll probably give you today, as, as many as we can, uh, um, that um, maybe, maybe just come to terms with it. Um, I don't know there's many people in society that can say that they absolutely have never suffered from it. And um, I don't think that's a particular truth. I think there's a little bit of it on everybody. So I've suffered from imposter syndrome both personally kind of and academically since I was very little. I think the other thing I'd mention kind of to add is that I've had it like socially as well as just with my academics. So I'm neurodivergent and I've always felt like for me imposter syndrome feels like not fitting in, not belonging and then not being adequate. So I always felt that throughout my childhood in school and then when I got to uni that was like exemplified, like amplified way out of proportion. Um, I went to a different uni for undergrad, but undergrad I definitely felt it the most, um, especially since a lot of the people around me were privately educated and I was a state school student who'd had a really bad time during sick form. And so basically the way I got into university was I missed my grades, but I had um, this form that basically said all the things that had gone wrong during my sick form experience with lack of teachers etc and they let me in on that and everyone else had these super high grades where I went it was and I was just sat there like I I'm a, literally a fraud I didn't get the grades I shouldn't be here um and it took a lot of persuading from my professors and a very senior member of my uh, university telling me no you're meant to be here for me to get over that but it was months before I even accepted I was supposed to be at university and it wasn't until I actually got my first year results that I finally accepted it fully um that I was supposed to be there and it was the same as socially like first year of university I missed so many opportunities to go to clubs or societies because I felt like I wasn't good enough to be there um I didn't get involved with the LGBTQ community because I felt like I wasn't gay enough to be there um so I've experienced it kind of in all aspects of my life and I know a lot of people have as well um, and it's put a lot of people in my life off of doing things because they felt they're not adequate to, so I really want to kind of explore it and give some tips and tricks because I don't want anyone else to not do something because they feel like they've got this this imposter syndrome going on.
Thank you so much, guys, for sharing your those experiences. Um, it's so interesting to to hear your stories, and it's something that I suffer with a lot, a, like a lot in my like when I did my undergrad degree, when I was at school, even through like sports clubs and stuff. Um, feeling that like you're you're not good enough to be part of that part of that team or to perform that routine. Um, and I I had a very similar experience in in my undergrad degree. Um, I got into university through through college so I did like a two plus two um and I certainly felt that that like I wasn't as smart as other people in my course because they came straight from high school um and they had they had all those grades that they needed to get in whereas I didn't get those grades so I had to go down another route so I always had that doubt that I'm just I'm not good enough like I'm not going to pass and even within my my day job now, like even preparing for this podcast, it's quite ironic that I was like, mm, don't think I'm the right person to be hosting this episode. Like, why why am I doing this? Um, so like it's really ironic that like it's sort of feelings that we have like all the time. And as you say, it's it's so interesting. It's not just females at like a given point in their career or at university. It can happen to anyone. And I think the the interesting thing is that it can happen to everyone at, at any level of their career as well. Um, and it's something that it's um, it does really help me to to understand that it's not it isn't just me. There is other people who are maybe further on in their in their career who are experiencing it as well. And I think just kind of talking about it a little bit more can just make you feel a little bit better about it. So I think now we've kind of discussed what imposter syndrome is. Um, I think it would be good to talk about where it comes from so does it come from like our personality traits we've kind of touched on it a little bit but does it come from like our family backgrounds and our upbringings or is it like a learned behavior um what are your guys thoughts on where it comes from is it a combination of of all three is one more prevalent than the other um i'd be interested to hear what you guys think um <clears throat> at least for me i i notice two main sources of the imposter syndrome just in my own experience, the one um, uh, you mentioned earlier, um, neurodiversity. Um, for me, one of the things that really led to imposter syndrome when I was younger was masking. And that's something that I didn't even know was a thing until like last year. Um, when I was young, I would just, I figured, okay, I'm just, I'm just too weird and awkward and people just don't really seem to know how to communicate with me or maybe I just can't communicate with anyone else. So I'm just going to try and observe and copy behaviors and, oh, this person seems like they're getting what they want. Maybe if I act like this. And I remember describing it to my parents and my friends as I just, I don't feel like a person. I feel like, like I'm, my personality is something that I've just assembled and I'm pretending to be a person. <clears throat> and that kind of followed me along, uh, you know, early on because I never felt like my taste in anything was my own because it was just a, an amalgamation of the people around me. But more recently, I think, I think the big driver and the big cause of imposter syndrome or the perpetrator of imposter syndrome is <clears throat> what we each face with social media. 
and there's this culture of selfless self-promotion. And it seems to be no matter what industry you work in, no matter your field, everyone has to be a either an entrepreneur or like a character in this story of social media. Even if you work a nine to five job and you have a clearly defined role, you go on social media and you see your, your colleagues and your coworkers, oh, I just completed this big project. Or maybe it's in their personal life, you know, these, these fantastic achievements and you're equal parts happy and excited and maybe a little envious, but then you kind of have to look at yourself and say, oh God, I mean, I would love to have appreciation for what I'm doing, but at the same time, how on earth can I put something out there and expect people to like it and appreciate it. Um, and then, I mean, for people I, like myself that work in, that are essentially self-employed uh, or, or are going to have to be, you know, self-employed or so reliant on ourselves to secure work in the future, it's so daunting to go up to people and try to sell myself and I've heard I've heard equal parts good and bad advice about that I've heard some professionals in my field say you need to be just shameless you need to have all these great things to say about yourself and you need to walk into the room confidently shout your name make an impression and say that you are the greatest thing since sliced bread and they will believe it and they will want to invest in you and I have other friends and colleagues that have said the complete opposite. No, 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 no. You don't want to, you need to be very humble. You let your work speak for itself and you just, you just do it that way. And then I end up doing both. I, I come in, I shout my name and then I don't leave my work behind <laughs> for them to, for them to find, or I'll send them something, but not follow up or it's just it's just a terribly awkward situation um, to also to face um, in my own life or in my own work a situation where I'm I'm very clearly aware that I need to paint something as successful in a different light. If uh, if I completed a piece of work and I'm really proud of the accomplishment. I have to put it out there in a way that makes me seem financially successful because nobody wants to, you know, work with someone who isn't publishing a lot and selling a lot and, and getting a lot of work that way. They don't want someone who just writes a lot and puts a, a bunch of work out there, but it's never, it's never looked at. And it feels so, it, again, it feels like masking. It brings me right back to that. For me to say, okay, well, I'm self-publishing this piece that I just finished. I probably will never hear it recorded or performed. Nobody might ever look at it again. But you know what? I self-published it and I spent all this time editing it and making it look pretty. So I'll put a screenshot up and I'll type up a post and make it seem like it's going to sell really well or like it's very professional. But deep down, I know that I had to facilitate that. And I also feel like I'm the only one who ever has to do that. And everyone else has other people, you know, 
supporting them and other people singing their praises. I absolutely agree with everything Ben just said. I think LinkedIn is like the most horrible thing in the world. Every time I go on there for like when I was looking for jobs before I started my PhD and it was awful. Just all of my friends posting these things about all these fabulous things they were doing like, you know, the type of I just started this, look where it's got me, aren't I great, but also doing it humbly. Um, so you can't really criticise them. I think that's something that I really struggle with because especially I'm not going down that path. I'm going down some my own kind of academic roots, very niche and a bit weird to a lot of people um, because I do archaeological science, which like, most people haven't even heard of. Um, so I feel like I'm not supposed to be within these crowds because I'm not like them. And I think it's so much socially mediated. It's like social media, as Ben said, is such a big influence. Um, but even just society, like when I was little, you expected to do certain things and to be popular, you expected to be a certain way. So all the way through, we have these expectations and we feel like we're never meeting them. And then that kind of goes into university life because, you know, with your academics, you're sat there like, I've got to get straight A's. I've got to do so well. And no one can achieve that because no one's perfect, but we've conditioned to, to think that we have to be perfect all the way through. Um, and I think it's, it's really a struggle, but I think there is a level of personality to it as well. I've met people who've struggled less with imposter syndrome and people who've struggled more, and it very much varies just on individuality, I think, um, how much we experience it. Um, everyone experiences it to some degree, but especially when you are a bit neurodivergent and you, like... When I was little, I was very anxious, but I used to think that I just wasn't coping well with situations that everyone else coped with well. So I thought I didn't belong in that situation because I was just inadequate. And I think a lot of people feel that way as well, but don't necessarily realise it um, for certain reasons. So yeah, I think it's personality, it's society, it's all of the things <laughs> kind of combining to make this horrible situation. I think I would agree with that. I think um, the trying to figure out where it comes from or whether it comes from one particular place is really difficult because I think there's a lot of confusion about what it is in terms of, you know, um, some people perceive it as a, is, is it a lack of self-confidence or is it that self-doubt? Um, but it's really, it goes a bit more deep-rooted than that and it's that whole belief that you really aren't as good as everyone else thinks you are and so it prevents you from reaching your full potential kind of thing and, you know, we can all be a bit sort of lack of confidence in certain things and when we put into unfamiliar situations and things but as I say, I think it's a bit more deep-rooted than that so I think taking on board what other people have said that it's a whole combination of things I think it can come from that whole childhood messaging or parenting and signals that you get from there if you've got an elder sibling or another sibling that's excelled in something and you know you're always trying to strive to that level whether that's academic or not um, and you know that what the how your parents then you know sort of react to that and what sign signals and messaging they give you I think society is, is absolutely is um, you know fundamental um, the messages that society give um, lack of role models I think as well you know during you know your, your early years and your sort of early career years as well I think has something to do with it you know if you can really can identify your an actual role model however whether that's within academia or out with academia you know and um you know that, i think that really helps as well so yeah I'm, i completely agree i think it's a whole range of things and there's nothing one that i can put my finger on i think it's different for other bit from, from across different people as well 
Um, I completely agree that social media definitely has enhanced it so much more. So I think that while university students aren't the only ones that can experience imposter syndrome, I think that we're subjected to it in ways that, that perhaps like older generations are not. Um, which is quite ironic because social media is also one of the ways that's kind of helped me overcome imposter syndrome um, over the last few years. But I think for me, it was just kind of internalised perfectionism and that's just all where it started. And I didn't really have any older siblings that I felt I, I felt as though I was in like competition with or anything um, or any like extra pressure. Um, it was just this perfectionism that's always been there. Um, so I think that like I've always done well in school and I think that I love the feeling of that so then I'd continue to like raise the bar and that that was my way of like proving my self-worth and value um, through like academic success so I think that because that was something I could control and manage it just started this like endless cycle that has kind of stuck with me and grown since starting my undergrad um, but yeah I definitely think that LinkedIn and social media in general is kind of today's version of like that becoming a lot worse so yeah, I completely agree that I do think it's a variety of a lot a lot of factors. It's not some maybe more prominent for others, but it's definitely not one factor in isolation. Certainly for me, um, I would say it's a lot to do with, with my personality and being a bit of a perfectionist. Um, always want to kind of do the best that I can and make people proud, make myself proud, and then often feeling that I haven't done enough to to warrant that praise that's something that I, I do struggle with quite quite regularly and it's something that I, I shouldn't I shouldn't be struggling with. I'm at this stage in, in my career and um that I should be confident in, in my abilities and, and what I'm doing. Um others others think that, but it's a thought within yourself that you feel like, oh hang on, I'm not quite sure I'm getting this or where where I'm going. Um so definitely I feel it's got a lot to do with, with personality as well as well as um the background as well certainly for me I came from um like a more not deprived background but you know I wasn't from an affluent, an affluent background um came from like a, a council estate and um, where not a lot of people um did well academically or maybe went to university so always with that was always in the back of my mind that like that's where I, I shouldn't be, you know, striving to go to, to university because that's like out with my capabilities and that's not what I, I should be doing. So that was always really hard for me to kind of think, well, actually, no, I, I can and, and I want to. And like no one told me to go to university. I, I wanted to. I wanted to, you know, do um, create a, a good life for myself. And, you know, I wanted to learn more, but I did always struggle with that. Um, I think at this point in the podcast, it would be really good if we could talk about how we've dealt with imposter syndrome ourselves and if we have any advice for any any of our listeners, so any kind of like self-help tips that we've used, um, anything that has helped us reduce those feelings um, and symptoms of imposter syndrome. Um, I think there's a lot of reassurance just in knowing that most people experience it during their lifetime. It's not just students. I think that people starting new jobs and moving to new places, um, like it can happen and hit you at any point in your life, even if you've never stuff, suffered with it before. Um, I remember seeing like an interview where um, Emma Watson was talking about it, which kind of struck me because I don't think we associate, we, well, we believe that it's like people, like famous people would suffer with something like that. Um, but she said that receiving any kind of recognition for her work makes her feel really uncomfortable. So even though that's really sad, it was also quite comforting to see. Um, and just remembering that we're not all imposters, so it's important to acknowledge yourself and like redefine your own um, capabilities, realising that not everybody would like thrives in an academic environment as well, such as the classroom. So like, perhaps your greatest strength is that 
you are a people person or that you're creative so success is relative as well and I think like unless like no one has walked in your shoes so I think we it's important to remember that everyone can kind of become successful within their own capacity um and I kind of love the phrase like fake it till you make it as well um I think that that is there for a reason so I think that even if you are experiencing imposter syndrome I think by doing that you're practicing something that you eventually still want to accomplish so I think that practicing that is still a really great way to overcome it um and just like expressing your feelings and talk to somebody that you trust I think it's such a minefield of like undesirable thoughts and emotions and I think while university can be a really great opportunity and place to thrive and it's you know it's a really great stimulating opportunity I think it can also be quite demanding if you're not in the right headspace I think it's such a basic point to make but just open up to somebody because most people do experience it at some point yeah, I think talking to people, um, because I think as soon as you start the conversation, they're probably going to give you idea, um, examples of how they felt it and when they felt it, no matter who you speak to. Um, I think um, one of the things we're talking about is perfectionism. And I think one of the other things is just, you know, really try and accept that nobody, not even you, are perfect all the time. And so to apply the 80% rule that sometimes 80% is good enough. There'll be times when, you know, you want to go for the the, the higher than that, but, you know, many times over 80% is, is probably good enough. I think there's a thing about um, your conversation and how you um, speak about things. So, you know, you know, things like saying, you know, well, um, I just got lucky, you know, um, I was in the right place at the right time for this to happen. When something positive happens to you, you try and sort of, you know, downplay it a bit and just put it down to pure luck instead of thinking, actually, no, I worked hard for that and I deserve that. And, you know, that self, you know, pat on the back kind of thing and um, being kind to yourself. Um, and I think, you know, actually knowing your strengths and um, playing up to your strengths um, and knowing your own skills and the limits of your own, own worth and abilities. Um, and so, again, you know, not putting it down to good luck or time, you know, etc. Um, finding a mentor, I think, you know, something that I know many, many of my colleagues and something that I certainly um, recommend to people no matter what level. And, you know, it's not a mentor for life. I mean, sometimes you just need a mentor for a certain phase of your life or for six months or for a year or whatever. So there's no time limit to it. And so, you know, across my academic career of 30 odd years, you know, I've had three or four different mentors, males and females, academic and non-academic, um, just for, for different parts of my, of my career. Um, taking positive feedback, I think that's another thing that we just really need to get better at, you know, no matter who you are. And actually, you know, when someone says you did a good job, actually say thanks for that, not, oh, well, you know, it just took, well, so and so helped me, and, you know, and really again downplaying it. Um, and I think the other thing is accepting um, that some things just won't work, you know, that you will fail and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's not a dramatic flat on your face, fall, fall on your face, fail. But, you know, there'll be certain things that just keep it into perspective. Um, you know, many times over, no one's died or anything, you know, um, that piece of work wasn't wasn't particularly your best piece. But whatever, you know, um, again, it's that perfectionism thing, you know, just keep it in perspective. Um, and one of the things that on the recent imposter event that I was at, um, Kate Atkin, who's a, um, a real um, a speaker on this, um, it just sort of re- resonated with me. She said, you know, we all just need to be more like a zebra. 
you know, the group herd of zebras, basically, they're on the Serengeti, they're all sitting, you know, munching grass or whatever, they're attacked by a whole pride of lions, one of them dies or whatever, two minutes later, what are they all doing? They're back eating grass again, you know, kind of thing, and yes, maybe one of them has died, but the rest of them just get on with life and move forward, and it's something that really, at the time, you know, I, th- I thought, that's actually, that's something I'm really going to sort of keep at the back of my mind now, to, for all of us to be more like a zebra. Um, for me, I, I feel like I'm kind of the outlier in this. Um, I Perfectionism is not something that affected me in the typical way, I guess. I, I kind of had an inverse reaction. I don't know if other people experience this. Um, I, uh, I, I also came from a very... Um, uh, from a very difficult uh, neighborhood and school system and again being neurodivergent and not having any diagnoses or, or help really kind of made me struggle through school. I, I actually had really terrible uh, grades both through high school and my undergraduate and I remember my, my guidance counselor in high school sitting me down and telling me, I don't think you're going to graduate high school. I don't think college is in your future. Um, and I mean, I barely skated by, I think I may have even, uh, I don't know if I actually failed a course in undergrad, but I think I might have and had to retake it. But the, the issue with that is because I, I was so disconnected from the idea of, of perfectionism and getting good grades, it just, it didn't really seem to matter to me. People would look at me and say, okay, well, you have bad grades, but you're doing these things. So there's got to be something else there. Maybe it's your intelligence or maybe it's your talent or this or that. And we have this, uh, we have this habit of uh, assigning, especially to like children, this idea of genius or prodigy. And we slap that label on the kid and we change our expectations enormously. And the kid changes their expectations enormously. And I mean, that created its own uh, spiral and cycle for me you know, later on in life, because then, you know, I can look at my work now and say, OK, well, I'm creating this work. But, you know, I, I used to get bad grades and maybe I'm really struggling in the more logistic and administrative parts of my life. And, yeah, I, I am might be happy with this. Uh, piece of work that I put out but at the same time I missed all these deadlines and I haven't been able to follow up on these things and I've been letting a lot of people down and you know what maybe I really don't deserve to be here because my whole life I've been told that oh yeah it's it's uh it's your intelligence you're 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 smart you're bright and that's gonna take you far and it you know it I allowed myself to to not work on the things that I should have been working on because I was expecting something else to carry me. So for the solution that that I've tried to implement in my life, um, I, I think it all comes down to authenticity. I mean, that's the antithesis of imposter syndrome. And I think for everyone, if you can define authenticity for yourself, because we're all going to have our own qualifications and definitions, etc. But if you can isolate and, and even write down your specific definition of authenticity, 
and then use really use that as your measure and start to try and identify what someone else's measure of authenticity is because then you'll i mean at least for me i find when i when i look at someone that i'm comparing my work to or comparing my success to or or whatever it's really it's a really kind of illuminating moment if i say to myself are they creating something that is authentic to themselves? And I really quickly can start to sort out who might be, you know, trying to jump on a, a trend or trying to imitate something that they don't feel is their own voice. They're trying to create work that they think is going to be successful because this other stuff is successful. And you will also find people that have found success that are creating things that are very authentic to themselves. And that's really helped me sort through it. And then when I push it further and I create work, I can look at it and say, is this piece of work authentic to me? And if you judge it by that alone and you, you, you take away what kind of success it finds in any other measure then you can't say that you are an imposter because you are creating something that is authentic and at least for me at the end of the day um, if I've created a body of work that meets that definition of authenticity for me it's okay if it doesn't achieve any kind of commercial success or any kind of success in those other measures because with time, all of the facade starts to fade. All of the work of the people that I was comparing myself to starts to get grouped into, oh, well, this is a trend, or this was, this was the style, and they were imitating this one person. But you know what? This one piece or this one thing that they were imitating is really the thing that's going to stand the test of time because it was in and of itself authentic. So all the imitations fade away. And what we're left with is the work that is authentic. Whether or not it's notable to some people or to others is up for debate. But that's what we do in academia, is we debate the merit of those things. But we only debate what is authentic. Because if it's not, it's not, it's not worth talking about. So, I mean, it's really, 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 really difficult, especially at this time in my life. I'm 30 now. But to create something and everyone I show it to might say, ah, I don't know, have you tried this? I don't really like it, whatever. But if I can sit down and I go through phases of hating my work and then, and then liking it and hating it, but if in six months I can look back on it and say, you know, I, I feel like this actually, this is actually me. Then, then I have some grand ground to stand on. I think absolutely of this idea of kind of setting your own success and what it means for you is something that's really important to me. Um, in a similar way. Um, I used to set goals for, I think for other people and now I've, especially coming to Aberdeen and starting my PhD, I've had, I've said, no, this is what success means for me. 
and it's not necessarily getting the best grades or doing everything it's if I can get out of bed read two papers today and maybe have a shower I've succeeded um and it sounds really stupid but like actually that's really helpful because then you think no I've done the best that I can do today regardless of what anyone else has done and that starts to help you feel less like an imposter because you go because you realize you're still getting by and then you realize that's me being myself doing what I can do and I'm still fine I think another thing I've had to do is challenge those thoughts and you really have to be strict with yourself so I imagine it for me it's my mum's voice um going no actually you are meant to be here carry on do that thing anyway sometimes she'll actually tell this to me she's a very good as a kind of mental person um but kind of making sure you have that strict voice that says if you're going to stop doing something because you're worried you you're not good at it and that means that you can't do it actually no you can go along anyway and it will be fun and even if you're rubbish at something that doesn't mean it's a bad thing which comes on to another thing I've learned, which is kind of practicing failure. And this is something like I would never recommend this to a student. But once I had a therapist who told me miss a deadline and it was an essay that didn't count towards any grade. And I did it and it kind of changed my whole perspective because the world didn't end. Everything was fine. And don't miss your deadlines, but also for me, that was a really big deal and practicing those kind of things. So going to something, you know, you're not going to be very good at and enjoying it and having a laugh, even though you're not good at it, is something that I find quite fun. So I went on a hike on the weekend. I'm really slow, but I had a good time anyway. No one judged me for being slow and it was fine. And that's something I never would have done even six months ago. And that's you kind of challenging those behaviours. Um... Yeah, and the fake it till you make it, honestly, is the biggest thing. I pretend I have confidence in every situation, even if I don't. And eventually you kind of do, because you'll just get used to doing it, even when you haven't got confidence. So it becomes something you've practised. And I think it is very much practising those behaviours that challenge your thoughts and kind of make you feel like you do belong. And I think, for me, imposter syndrome is never going to be something I get over, but it's something I can deal with. And I think if you recognise that you're still going to potentially feel that way, but that you can still do stuff and get over it, that was a big step for me as well. Um, but yeah, definitely kind of challenging your own thoughts and just kind of trying to get on with life a little bit, if you can. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Um, that's some really, really helpful advice that I know that I'm going to be able to use um, and challenge in the feelings that I have um, with my imposter syndrome. So thanks so much for that. Um, I'm sure we've helped some of our listeners as well, but you've definitely helped me. Um, so I call that a success. <laughs> um, one of the things that I would definitely say um, in terms of helping you um, deal with how you're feeling with imposter syndrome and, and trying to overcome it the biggest thing I can say is is to be kind is to be kind to yourself. Um, try not to be like it's really easy to be your own worst critic, isn't it? Um, but try try so hard to think of, even it's it might sound silly, but even like when you were back in um primary school, like my my school certainly did like 
two stars in a wish so like two good things about something that you have done and then one thing that can be improved um similar to that like feedback sandwich that you would give someone um start with a positive what can we improve then end on a positive and I think it's really easy to do that when you're speaking with someone else but when you're having your own internal thought um that's certainly something that I try to do it's it is very hard to do with yourself um but I'm getting a little bit better at it and also just to reach out um if you are um feeling like you don't belong and feelings of like self-doubt um reach out speak to someone because as we've kind of discussed throughout the episode there's so many people that have experienced these feelings will be experiencing these feelings and even people that you feel um you know they look like they've got it all together and they're so competent and you might even aspire to be that person they have most likely been in the situation that you are with these feelings too so I would definitely encourage you all to reach out I would just like to thank um you fabulous guests for coming along to um discuss imposter syndrome with me today. It's been a fabulous episode. I've certainly enjoyed our discussions. So thank you so much for giving up your time. To any of our listeners, if you are if you are struggling or want to explore any of the themes that we've discussed in this episode a little bit more, if you just go to the University of Aberdeen website and search Be Well, you'll find a list of resources there. Um, so thank you so much for listening, guys. Um, take care and I'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.